So does he want us to record an intro? I don't know. Let's just skip the intro. Hey, welcome to the show with no advertisements. <laughs> Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. And I am Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are The Minimalists. Thank you so much for joining us. This is episode number nine. Uh, actually, this is probably, what, episode 9.3 at this point. We've, yeah. We've tried to record this episode two other times, and we failed. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, when we sat down to record this for a second time, we were about maybe half an hour into the episode. And I just looked at Ryan at one point and said, we are both incoherent. <laughs> it's like we were both speaking just, I don't know, some alien language or and something. this whole time I thought we were like superhuman, but it turns <laughs> out after uh, an hour interview uh, on NPR, it, it kind of drains us a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so we did an interview in the morning yesterday and then we came over here to the Asymmetrical Press offices to record this episode of the podcast, episode nine. And what we wanted to talk about is, well, we're calling this episode next. So we want to talk about what happens after the decluttering, after letting go of the excess stuff. You know, often people think that minimalism is about getting rid of your stuff, just getting the clutter out of the way, getting rid of material possessions. And that is true. That's sort of the initial bite at the apple that changes everything for us. But ultimately, the the purpose of minimalism has to do with the benefits we experience once we're on the other side of decluttering. So removing the clutter from our lives is, is not the end result. It is merely the first step. I think we feel a, a weight lifted off our shoulders right away, but we don't experience lasting contentment by just getting rid of our stuff. Minimalism doesn't work like that. It's possible to get rid of everything you own and still be utterly miserable, to come home to an empty house and sulk after removing all your pacifiers. And so today we want to talk about what happens after uh, we let go. But before we get into our listener questions and voicemails, just a reminder, as most of you know, we, we have a documentary coming out on May 24th. 2016. You guys are gonna love it. Yes, it's you're going to awesome. love it indeed. We're so excited about it. So proud of, of what we've got going on here. But we also need your help. So we have uh, screenings in about uh, 160, 170 theaters so far. We're going to have about 400 theaters by the time uh, the movie comes out with our, our distributor, Gather Films, and they're helping us get this out to as many people as possible. But we have some theaters that are selling out already, which is really awesome. We have a lot of theaters who st- still need a lot of help. So there's a really good chance that this documentary is already screening in your city or town or suburb and uh, all you have to do is go to minimalismfilm.com click on see the film and reserve your tickets because there are other theaters that don't have enough reservations yet and we can't actually play the film in your theater until we have enough reservations there and so if you just go to minimalismfilm.com click on see the film and if we don't have a screening in your area that's okay. You can actually just request a, a screening. So if you live in a suburb somewhere and you have a, a theater nearby, we have relationships with 3,300 theaters across the United States. So you have the opportunity, if there isn't a showing close to you, you can bring the film to your town. Hey, Josh, um, how does my friend in Zimbabwe get the film? Good news. 
uh, we're doing our theatrical run in the United States first, and then we're, we're moving on to Canada and Australia. We're, we're still working out the details and the dates on Canada and Australia, and we're also working on some overseas distribution. I don't know whether or not Zimbabwe, where they are, they fall in the, the whole chain there, but we will have other distribution, and eventually the film will be available online as well. So everyone's going to have an opportunity to see this film. We're so excited to, uh, to share it with you. If you want to see the trailer, which is phenomenal, our director, uh, Matt Diavella, is a genius. You can see the trailer. It's about two and a half minutes long over at minimalismfilm.com. Let's get started with the show. Let's listen to our first uh, voicemail question. And this one's from Casey. Hey, guys. This is Casey. I'm in the Air Force down in Florida. And I read everything that remains at the end of my marriage. And I did nothing but make my life awesome after I read it. Um, I had a question for you guys. Uh, it was easy for me to get rid of stuff. I thought it was funny. You guys said, uh, I forget exactly how you said it. There's three types of minimalists. One's like, yeah, I want to do this, but, uh, it's going to take a long time. And the other ones, or no, one is, you know, no, I could never do that. Second one is, uh, yeah, I want to do it, but it's going to take some time. And the third one is, you know, where's the dumpster? And that was me. Uh, what were some of the activities that you guys kind of had to cut out that you didn't necessarily think at first uh, would be easy to? One, is kind of a silly example, but I have a PlayStation, and, you know, it's fun to play, but when I'm playing it, obviously I'm not really doing anything with my life. You know, you're just kind of sitting in front of a TV uh, doing nothing. So, uh, well, you know, what was some of the stuff like that that you guys had to kind of to get rid of? So first off, Casey, uh, thank you for your service down there in Florida. Really, really appreciate it. Um, Well, not just down there in Florida, but but overseas as well. Um, And congratulations that you're able to let go so easily. That's awesome. And I think for most of us, that's the most difficult thing. The the average American household has more than 300,000 items in it. And, and that's not me just going around counting people's stuff. That, that's according to the Los Angeles Times. We look at, at the things in our lives and we get overwhelmed. We don't know where to start. And for you being able to let go of a lot of the stuff and saying, hey, rent a dumpster, throw it all out and move on with your life. But we're, what were some of the activities that, that we got rid of? Um, I like to do stoical experiments from time to time. So for me, back in uh, 2009, when I first discovered minimalism, I got rid of TV when I when I first moved, and I, I remember Ryan came over to my apartment. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Where's your TV, man? You've got a TV. You got a TV uh, anchor on your wall to hang an awesome, nice, big TV. Where's your nice, big TV that goes there? <laughs> right, because that's what you're supposed <laughs> to do, right? And I I just said, you know, I moved in this new place. I, I kind of don't get a lot of value from it. But my problem with TV is I would come home and just turn it on. It'd be like a fireplace going in the background all the time. And sort of this this amount of white noise. But the problem with that is it kept me from focusing on what I actually needed to do in front of me, whether it was uh, responding to emails or doing something creative or reading a book. Because let's face it, if you have the TV turned on, you're sitting on the couch in front of the TV, it makes concentrating on reading a book much more difficult or, or whatever else you're trying to do. And so I found myself attempting to multitask and I really wasn't actually, I wasn't getting anything done be, because I was so spread out on this multitasking. Multitask really it just means lack of focus. It, it's, it's a synonymous with unfocused. 
exist. And, and so I was doing that. And I found that by removing the TV from my life, I was able to start focusing a lot more on things that were more important to me. It doesn't mean that I think there's anything inherently wrong with, with television. I don't own I still don't own a TV now, but I do watch some TV shows from time to time. On our last podcast, I even recommended a TV show. But what I'll do now is I will I tend to rent them like on iTunes and, and then I'll download it on my computer and then I will watch it with someone else and, and share that experience so we can obviously talk about that experience after we have it. So that, that's sort of one of the experiments I had. But I found there were a lot of a lot of things that were just getting in my way that I removed. Other activities, I've done a bunch of other experiments uh, as well and we can talk about those. But Ryan, what, what are some of the things that you've you've removed from, from your life? Well, uh, Casey talked about having a PlayStation. Um, I had an Xbox. That was a huge pacifier for me. I would come home, I get all my emails done by like, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And then I'm like, oh, I'm just going to play <laughs> Isn't call. Isn't that great? Hold on, hold on one sec. Isn't that kind of crazy? You, you get up and the first thing you did was check your BlackBerry because you the, the responded to emails. barrage of emails. Yeah. And then at nighttime before bed, you're still responding to emails from the same day and it's just never ending. And so then your reward was what? Was, yeah, playing Xbox. So I would sit down at 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night and I tell myself, well, you know, I'm just going to sit here and play Call of Duty for an hour or, or an hour and a half. And then at three o'clock in the morning, and, you know, a 12-pack of beer later, oh, gosh. Uh, I would finally get so sleepy I just couldn't keep my head up anymore. And then it would just kind of kill my next day and, and kill my pro- productivity sometimes. But but I uh, certainly got rid of that. I actually had it um, for a little bit after I left the corporate world. And I thought, well, this is all right. Well, now I've got more time. And, uh, you know, it's okay if I, if I spend an hour or two playing Xbox. But really what I ended up doing was instead of playing it for three hours, I would start playing it for six hours so quickly. Oh, wow. I had to identify uh, that this was something that was draining my time. So when you talk about wasting hours, the, the thing that I waste hours on is YouTube. YouTube is my crack. I get lost in that that Bermuda Triangle of of just going farther and farther down this this rabbit hole of because because on YouTube you have all these additional videos on the side and it's like I, and, it, and it knows really well what I'm going to like. You and, like cat videos? You're gonna love <laughs> these cat videos. Well, I, I get lost like watching like Canadian rap battles and all of a sudden it's three hours later and I'm like, what am I doing? Like it, it's it's I liken it to eating candy like. If you eat a piece of candy, it is not going to kill you. And you're not going to get sick, most likely, from a piece of candy. It's certainly not healthy. I'm not going I'm not advocating anyone goes out and eats candy or eats sugar, but eating a piece of candy is not so unhealthy that you're going to have some sort of catastrophic uh, event happen to you. But if you want to go gorge on candy for the next four hours, which is what I would do with YouTube, given the opportunity, then you're going to feel really sick, like sick to your stomach. The problem with YouTube is I felt sick sort of emotionally and mentally drained afterward. Like, what did I just waste four hours on? Uh, Back in 2011, I wrote an essay about this. I, I got rid of internet at home. Sort of a, a, as an accident at first, I moved, and for the first few days, I realized, well, I don't have internet right now, and and because I was still moving stuff uh, around my apartment, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to try for 30 days to consciously live without internet at home. It doesn't mean I don't have access to the internet. It just means I have to plan access to the internet. So uh, back then, I w- we were in Dayton, Ohio still. I'd go to Ryan's house to, to get on online, or I'd go to the local library down the street, or a coffee shop, uh, press coffee house uh, there in 
Dayton, Ohio, and I would plan my internet. And you know what? Those 30 days were the 30 most productive days of my life. I got more writing done. I more I started reading books, and and I, I learned a lot more about myself and my habits and these pacifiers, these these triggers that I had. I was constantly twitching for for the internet. And the first week was miserable because I'm like, I can't get on Facebook or I can't get on Twitter right away. Um, and and so it was it was difficult for me at first. It was reprogramming this habit, and I had to start replacing those bad habits with something new. And so I started replacing it with with writing or reading books or with exercising or with having conversations with people and doing something productive as opposed to you know falling down that rabbit hole. Now, that's not to say that there's anything inherently wrong with television or there's anything inherently wrong with YouTube. In fact, I still find value in YouTube if I do it deliberately. In fact, now, if I want to get lost down that rabbit hole, the first thing I'll do is I'll schedule an hour or two to just get lost in YouTube. I'll put it on my calendar, and, and that way I know, like, okay, I've given myself permission to spend an hour watching, you know, whatever videos I want to watch, and then I move on from it. And, and that feels far more productive because I have planned it out, and I've given myself permission as, as opposed to treating it as a pacifier. And the same goes with video games, too. Uh, uh, Jane McGonagall wrote a book called Super Better, and she talks about the, the positive... Uh, psychological and neurological benefits of playing certain video games like Tetris, especially for people who have experienced uh, some sort of a traumatic brain injury or PTSD. There are a lot of benefits when, when we uh, play video games in, in a deliberate way, way to repair our brain and to, or to better ourselves. But you're right. I think we can, we can fall down that rabbit hole and you know, we can eat four hours worth of candy uh, metaphorically and, and not feel very good about our, our days or ourselves as a result. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate when one gives up all their pacifiers, they, they have to be prepared to be a bit uncomfortable for a while. Uh, because if you're not prepared for that, if, if you don't have things to replace those activities with, then it's very, very easy to go right back down that rabbit hole. Cassandra in Illinois has a voicemail question for us. What do you do once you have gotten rid of all of your excess and all of your stuff in your house, um, and do you ever feel like you reach a plateau once you've gotten rid of everything? So do we ever reach a, a plateau? I think you reach a, a point where there's sort of this critical mass where you feel comfortable at, at a period of time. Like I said, if the average American household has 300,000 items in it, well, if you get rid of 90% of your stuff, you still have 30,000 items. And those 30,000 items may not always add value to your life as you move on. I know when I let go of about 90% of my stuff, I was, I was 28 years old. I'm 34 years old now. And the things that added value to my life at age 28 don't necessarily add value at age 34. So I'm constantly asking this question, does this thing add value to my life? And as our life circumstances change, the things that add value to our lives change as well. And, and here's the cool thing about that. Just because something stops adding value to my life, that doesn't mean it won't add value to someone else's life. So my willingness to let go is really my willingness to contribute to other people, my willingness to add value to other people's lives as well by donating or, or selling those things. And so have I ever experienced a plateau? Yeah, absolutely. And once you reach that plateau, you have to realize that minimalism is not a destination. Minimalism for us is a 
tool to eliminate the excess so we can start to focus on what's important. And I'm reminded, uh, Ryan, of of, uh, an essay that you wrote called Offbeat. And uh, toward the end of that essay, uh, you were talking about sort of getting yourself uncomfortable doing something offbeat. And, And this is a direct quote from the essay. Uh, if you if you're feeling stagnant or stuck, you should change your state. Do something offbeat. Audition for a play. Take a photography class. Take tango lessons. Do cartwheels in the yard. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not continue to do the same old routine. And, and so I think once we get to a point, it, we have to realize what Ryan said earlier about making yourself uncomfortable. That's the place from which you grow the most. So when you feel like you've plateaued, what you're really saying is, I am in a place where I'm utterly comfortable. And that's really the reason Ryan and I started doing this podcast is we've gotten pretty darn good good at blogging. We've gotten good at writing books. We've written three books that have done fairly well. We've written five years worth of blogs, which has been awesome. And we've gotten really good at that over time. Uh, This podcast or touring, these are different ways that allow us to grow. They put us in what I call a discomfort zone. And so whenever I feel like I'm plateauing, I know I need to do something, as Ryan said, offbeat, something that is going to make me uncomfortable so I can grow. What I would say to uh, Cassandra is, you know, most journeys, they do come to an end, but it's not really about reaching the end of that journey. It's, it's about the journey itself. So if you started uh, decluttering and you're worried about, well, what am I going to do once this decluttering journey is over? Well, ask yourself, why did you start to declutter in the first place? I mean, for me, it was about letting go of a lot of things so I could find a job that I enjoyed. Then it carried into my health. Then it carried into my relationships. So think about why did you initially start that journey and what were the benefits that you were planning on experiencing from there? So, you know, the journey may be over, but the good news is, is that there are a lot of journeys ahead to choose from. Let's listen to a voicemail from Aaron. I was just wondering how you guys manage papers and how you, you know, manage writing down info and storing it. So what do you do with all your papers? I don't really have a lot of papers these days. Uh, I burn them. <laughs> I got rid of most, uh, most of my paper. I mean, I was trying to think as I'm listening to this question, like the different tools that I use, I do have a, like a really small moleskin notebook that I will use to write notes down that I constantly have with me. Yeah. But other than that, I'm going to my smartphone to take notes. Everything is nice and organized in there. On my laptop, I've got, uh, you know, f- the fiction file where I've got some fiction ideas that I would like to write on one day. I've got an essay file uh, where I will uh, write down some essay ideas and where I keep all the essays. Um, I've got a file uh, for my journal, which I do every once in a while, but certainly using tools like that will help. I know a lot of uh, a lot of young kids these days are using Evernote. I don't use it too much. Do you use Evernote? No, not a whole lot, but but I know I know a lot of folks who use Evernote and really love it. And, and you know, I'll tell you that the thing that Evernote helps a lot of people with is managing a lot of the, the papers and being able to take photographs of business cards and being able to to take uh, photographs of even like a journal or a notebook or something you've done and just catalog it that way and organize it and set up uh, different tags and a system to organize and digitize your your paper. I found the best way for me to handle paper is to bring as little of it into my life as possible. That way I have far less to organize because if you're bringing in these mounds of paper all the time, yeah, it becomes a full-time job trying to, to organize it. And so by bringing fewer things in and then the things 
things I do bring into my life, I try to quickly digitize those for a couple reasons. One is if I lose the paper, it's gone. There's nothing I can do with it. But if I digitize it and then it's backed up into the cloud, if I lose my computer or lose the paper or whatever, I don't have to worry about what was on on that, that piece of paper or I can't believe I lost that photograph. When it's all digitized, it's saved and it's searchable as well. And I think Evernote really helps out uh, w- with that. And then, of course, storing it all in the cloud is is a great idea. And so I would I would definitely recommend uh, digitizing. And then, of course, with with junk mail, we have we definitely have some some recommendations for that too. Yeah, you can go to the minimalists dot com slash day 15 yeah. day one five yeah the uh the the number not not spelled out um but yeah that's what mariah and i have done we signed up for the do not send us junk mail now we literally might get a couple pieces of mail uh, every couple days and i know the mail that we get it's important and i don't have to uh, sit there and go through a bunch of crap hey, don't you hate when you when you leave for like a week or something you come back and you have just a mailbox that is brimming with a bunch of a bunch of junk mail. And so, yeah, at, at theminimalists.com slash day 15, that's, that's sort of the 15th day of, of Ryan's journey when he went through his 21 days of, of minimalism. And there are some, some great resources there, uh, dmachoice.org, uh, optoutprescreen.com, and theworldprivacyforum.org. These are all great ways for you to eliminate not all, but the vast, vast majority of the junk that is showing up in your mailbox at home and also uh, your, your inbox, too. So we've got some, some great resources for you there yeah. to deal with the clutter before it even becomes. Just one last thing. I, when I'm thinking about notebooks, I know when I was decluttering and going through the packing party, I had these old notebooks from uh, college. Yeah. And I really valued a lot of these notes that I took. And I thought to myself, yeah, if I ever want to like reference this stuff, I'm going to hold on to it. And what I found is, A, I never referenced it. Sure. And B, uh, when I did try to go reference it, the notes were incoherent. If you got old college book notebooks uh, from when you took notes in class, uh, get rid of those. It's the, You're not going to use them. Yeah, and, and if you're absolutely tied to those, you can do what I did with a lot of photographs, but also a, a lot of paperwork. Uh, so Ryan had his packing party, uh, and I had a scanning party. See, it turns out if you put party at the end of anything, Ryan shows up to it. And so I, I did a scanning party where I, I bought this little uh, scanner online. It was maybe, I don't know, 50, 100 bucks. And I got so, so much value out of it, way more than that 50 or 100 bucks. You can find the, the scanner that I use over at theminimalists.com slash scanning. And there's that, that, I talk about the whole scanning party that, that I had there as well. But you can scan all your photographs, a bunch of different documents. And this is a scanner that you just start feeding documents into. This isn't one of the old school scanners where you have to like lift the top and then hit 17 buttons and it scans one page in every 14 <laughs> minutes. No, this is the thing you just feed photos in. And the cool thing about having a scanning party, bringing friends over to do this, uh, bring a handful of friends over, or order some food, some drinks, and, and have fun looking at some photographs that you otherwise wouldn't use. If you're anything like me and a lot of other people that I know, you probably have boxes of photographs that are in the basement or attic, or, or worse, you put it in, in these photo albums and force the photo albums onto your company and say, hey, do you want to see the time that I went to Hawaii? Here, Ryan, take a look at the trip. And Ryan's <laughs> like, yeah, I remember. I was there. I was there. Uh, I don't look at those. Yeah, and I don't want to look at your photos. <laughs> but by scanning them and, and putting them in a digital picture frame, and you can see the digital picture frame I use there as well at theminimalists.com slash scanning, 
people actually want to see it. If people come over and you have a digital picture frame, they start to actually look at, at the photographs. Uh, Becca did this with her parents this, this Christmas. Her, all of her, her siblings and her, um, when we went out to, to Minnesota to, uh, to her parents' house for Christmas, they all pitched in and got her this digital uh, picture frame, but then they preloaded a bunch of different photographs onto it. And there's an online service that you can upload more in the future as well. So they put just hundreds of photographs from all four families that are, that are there now. And it was so much more meaningful yeah. than just handing them a, a photo album that was going to get stored on a shelf somewhere. What a cool uh, idea. Yeah, I would, I would definitely recommend having a scanning party for all your documents, because here's the thing about that. If you're so worried about, I need those documents one day because I'm going to get audited or, or whatever, fine. Store them digitally and get them out of your, your attic, or your closet, or, or underneath your bed or wherever they are. I just want to clarify. We're having a podcast party right now, right? That's right. Okay. That's how I got Ryan to show up. Just wanted to make sure. Our weekly podcast party. <laughs> Frank in, in New York City. Frank has a, a question for us on voicemail. When does minimalism go too far? When Ryan. does minimalism go too far? You know, I think when the focus becomes solely on like how many items you own, that's one way it can go too far. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways that minimalism can go too far, but I know when I first started my journey, it seemed to be like this contest of who could have the fewest items. And when it gets to that point, you're, you're kind of losing the whole point right. behind minimalism. It's not, it's not about uh, being a stoic it's not about depriving yourself. It's not about saying, hey, look at me. I'm better than the Buddha because I have uh, less things than he had. Right. Uh, that's, I think that's where it can go too far. Another way it can go too far is, you know, are you, are you doing things uh, that aren't aligning with your values and beliefs? Because for me, that's what minimalism really helped me do. It helped me help my short-term actions align with my long-term values and beliefs. And if I was to get away from that and, and focus more on the items I had or uh, focusing on whatever and getting away from those, I think that is taking it too far. I do my best not to, to focus on minimalism itself. I use it as a tool. You know, Ryan and I both know people back in Ohio who have these massive tool sets in their garage, you know, multi-thousand dollar tool sets. And that's fine if you use the tools, right? But, but when the, the point of the tool set is to have the biggest, best tool set, as opposed to fix what you're attempting to fix. And for me, minimalism was a tool that allowed me to fix my life so I could start to focus on on those values. In, in our uh, first book, uh, so Frank, I'm going to send you a copy of, of our first book called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. Uh, in, in that book, we talk about the, the five values. And minimalism was a tool that allowed me to not just focus on those values, but first uncover those values. Because I had gotten to a point in my life where I didn't know what was important anymore. And because I didn't know what was important, obviously I couldn't focus on it unless I was accidentally focusing on it. And, and so by uncovering that which was important, I started to say, okay, my health is important, but wait a minute, I'm 80 pounds overweight. Or my relationships are, are, are important, but of course my marriage was ending, so I, I forsook the people closest to me. And I said that writing was important to me or pursuing a passion was important to me, but I wasn't spending any time actually cultivating a passion. 
and I, I wanted to grow. I wanted to contribute to the world around me, but but I wasn't doing those things because I was so focused on on so-called success and mm-hmm. achievement. I was so focused on the trinkets of, of success, and minimalism was was a tool. I wasn't focused on getting the biggest, nicest tool set. I was focused on using the tool in order to live a, a more meaningful life. Heather in Michigan has a question on voicemail for us. My question is, what's next? If, if I've spent so much time and energy on decluttering and trying to get my life in order, what I'm wondering is, what happens next? What are the next steps? Well, I always feel like I need to clean out another drawer. When I don't have all of this to focus on, I, I understand that it frees up my time for my family and my life, but will I always feel like I should be going through things or organize, organizing something else? And so your, your question about what's next, before we get to that, let's talk about responsible decluttering or responsible letting go, as, as I like to call it. So, so you talked about your mother and grandmother being worried about uh, the waste that is produced by by letting go and having all this stuff that can be true. When when we joke about you know you should just rent a dumpster and throw your stuff in it and move on with your life. I wish I could have done that. Y- you know what? The truth is we don't mean that literally. We mean that as a metaphor for moving on. But we are advocates of responsible letting go. What would be irresponsible for me would, would be to hold on to all of the excess stuff because that doesn't allow anyone to get any value from it. If I'm not getting value from it and no one else is, well, then I'm just hoarding it. And, and I may have been a, a, a well-organized hoarder, but the, the operative word there was was hoarding because the things that, that I owned weren't serving a purpose for anyone. And so by letting go, I realized that other people would get value from it. So I started selling a lot of stuff on eBay and Craigslist and started donating a lot of things in a way that that allowed other people to to enjoy the things I was no longer enjoying. And so I, I would encourage that. And in terms of what's next, it's really about finding something to run to. Instead of just running away from, from the clutter, which is, is great, and, and I, I commend you for that, what are the things that you want to run to? And that, that's why, for me, I, focusing more on writing, focusing more on my relationships, focusing on things that brought me joy, that, that made me feel a sense of purpose and satisfaction in my life was far more important, filling my life with those things as opposed to continuing to run away from, from the clutter. Do our lives actually ever get completely decluttered? Right. I mean, there, there are so many uh, responsibilities that we have uh, in our everyday lives, especially if you have a family. I mean, there, there is clutter that we constantly have to manage. Getting rid of that physical clutter uh, certainly frees up time to deal with all of other uh, life's clutter. So are you going to move on to mental clutter? Um, are you going to, uh, you know, maybe declutter some relationships, uh, whatever it might be. But if we're not careful, our lives can become cluttered again. So we, we do have to yeah, focus on just moving on and looking for that new horizon. Yeah, Heather, I'm going to send you a copy of our essay collection. It's called Essential. There are 12 different chapters in there, the, the 12 different areas of living a more intentional life. So it kind of starts with the stuff. It starts with minimalism and, and material possessions, and, and then it moves on to mindfulness and mental clutter and gift giving and relationships and all 12 different areas of living a more intentional, more deliberate life. And I hope you find some value in that, Heather. Our next question is from Lee in Alston, Texas. 
what would you guys say to a minimalist who wants to take it to the next level? So I've gotten rid of things I don't need and I don't want. I've read your books. I'm financially free. I've played the minimalism game with my friends. I love all of it. But what else can I do? Am I living the dream? You want to take it to the next level. How do you do that? For me, really it was about contribution. Like when I think about how did I move on after that packing party, when I got rid of 80% of my stuff, what did I move on to? And I contributed as much as I could, whether it was uh, to the blog, whether it was going on tour, whether it was with my family and my other relationships, or whether it was uh, contributing uh, to my health. But certainly, um, that's that's one way to bring it to the next level. How much how much are you contributing? For me, it was about cultivating a passion. I was an aspiring writer for the longest time, but I didn't do a whole lot of writing. I aspired all over the place. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to actually sit down and do the work. I'm going to drudge through the drudgery. And so I would encourage you to find something that interests you, whether that's tango dancing or or writing or scuba diving or snowboarding or yoga and and cultivate that into a passion. It doesn't mean it needs to be your mission in life. You don't necessarily have to make an income from it. Do it because it's something that you want to improve at, but it's also something that you want to cultivate into a, a true passion uh, of yours. And uh, Lee, you mentioned the 30-day minimalism game. I'll, I'll just clarify that for the folks who don't know what the heck that is. So we all know that decluttering is boring. We found a way to make it interesting with something called the 30-day minimalism game. And here's how it works. You can find all the details at theminimalists.com game. But basically, all you have to do is find a, a friend or family member or a, an arch enemy. And what all you have to do is agree to get rid of some stuff over the course of the next month. So on day one of the month, you'll get rid of each get rid of one item. Day two, two items. Day three, three items. So it starts out really easy. It gets you that momentum that you need. But over the course of 30 days, it starts to get harder, right? On day 15, you each have to get rid of 15 items. Day 20, 20 items. Now, whoever goes the longest wins. And if you both make it to the end of the month, you've both won because you've each gotten rid of about 500 items. It's a really great start, a really great way to get momentum, a really great way to start letting go and hold yourself accountable with someone else. Malika in Washington, D.C. has a question. What does minimalism look like on the other side? You guys talk a lot about how to get there, how to pare down your possessions, how to reflect on your life and return to what's important to you and all that good stuff. But what is life like for a post-minimalism minimalist? How do you guys maintain your physical possessions and life priorities in a minimalist way? Uh, do you guys regularly reevaluate all these things, kind of like a quarterly review, and start from, you know, get yourself back to square one? Or do you find that you just keep things at their best unconsciously? Thanks, Malika. So, the first thing with minimalism, uh, the thing that, that I started with was a question How might your life be better with less? And by asking that question, it allowed me to identify the benefits of minimalism. But then I started asking other questions questions like, Does this thing add value to my life? And the cool thing about that is as I went around to all of my material possessions, I kept asking that question over and over and over. Does this thing add value? And in fact, when I started bringing new things into my life, every time I go to the store to to purchase something, I asked that question as well. Will this thing add value to my life? In fact, I asked that question so frequently that 
it became less a habit and it became more of an emotion in time. And so anytime I start to look at something that I own or something I'm thinking about acquiring, I, I started asking that question emotionally. I had this emotional feeling around that question. And then that bled over into other areas of my life as well. Does this relationship add value to my life? And, and really what that means is, am I able to also contribute to this relationship or does this activity add value to my life? Do, does this focus, this thing I'm focused on right now, add value to my life? And by asking that question repeatedly, I started getting better answers and I was able to adjust my life accordingly. So your question about what does minimalism look like on the other side? For me, it looks like more empowering questions. And so once you've simplified your life, it opens up, gives you the opportunity to ask questions like, well, when did I give so much meaning to my material possessions? And what is truly important in my life? Why have I been so discontented? Uh, who's the person I want to become? And, and how am I going to define my own success? And I think these are tough questions with, with difficult answers. But for me, they, they've proven to be much more important than just trashing my excess stuff. And I, I feel like that if we don't take time to answer these questions carefully, to answer, answer these questions rigorously, then all the closets we just decluttered, all the rooms we just decluttered, they will be brimming with new purchases in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, there is never this... Um, end game. Uh, I think at the tor- towards the end, end of her question, she asked, do things just kind of subconsciously become perfect? For me, no. Like I have to be conscious every single day with every single uh, decision that I have. I mean, we're not perfect, right? But but I am I am constantly in that mindset. Whether it's uh, getting um, a gift from a relative that I like my mom came last February. She got me a couple gifts, and I wanted to hold on to them because my mom gave them to me, and it meant a lot to me. But at the end of the day, it wasn't uh, things that I really uh, got joy out of or that served a purpose. So I, I kind of uh, gave those to someone else to use. Whenever we're letting go, it gives us a new opportunity to start asking more questions. And so I think ultimately living a more meaningful life, if you want to live a better life, start to ask better questions, empowering questions. For so long, I asked myself disempowering questions. Why am I so fat? Why am I so stressed? Why can't I ever solve these problems? Those are self-fulfilling questions. But when you start asking better questions, how am I going to define my own success? Man, that opens up for a lot better answers. So if you want a better answer, ask a better question. Yeah, there are so many things on the other side of minimalism, and it's it's different for each person. And asking those questions is going to help you find out what the other side of minimalism is going to look for you. For me, it was less stress. It was less debt. It was uh, cultivating passion. Yeah, you know, I, I think we'd love to hear some some comments from our listeners as well. So if you have a comment about next steps, about, you know, post-decluttering clutter, and, and uh, if you have any minimalism tips for us, how you handle uh, uh, your life after letting go, then leave us a voicemail, 406-219-7839. We'll air some of our, our favorite comments and tips on the next episode. And if your voicemail is selected, we will send you an autographed copy of one of our books, either Essential or Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, or my personal favorite, Everything That Remains. Okay. Let's move on to our iTunes comment of the week. All right. This one is brought to you by Mo Ellis. 
The title of this comment is More Than Advice on Decluttering. It reads, when I started listening to this podcast, I thought to myself, this is awesome. Great for them. Not everyone can do what these guys do. But as I continued listening and diving into what these guys are really advocating in these episodes, I became truly inspired and realized I too can live simply and happily. More than just advice on how to declutter and downsizing. This podcast is great for real life, applicable mentalities and ways of living. If you find yourself discontented, cluttered, or unhappy with the status quo or life you're living, this is the podcast for you. We can all live the life we want if we're willing to put in the work. Awesome. Thanks, Mo. Um, I'm going to send you a copy of our book, Everything That Remains. And I uh, just want to say thank you for that. Once you get the book, though, make sure you minimize it when you're done with it. Find someone else who can get value from it. It doesn't need to just sit on a, a shelf collecting dust somewhere. And thank you to everyone else who has left us a comment on iTunes as well. Those positive, honest reviews help us uh, keep our simple living message reaching more and more ears. So make sure you keep those comments coming. We'll keep selecting some of our our favorite iTunes comments and, and reading them on the podcast. So feel free to get extra creative with your iTunes comments. Okay, let's move on to our hashtag Ask the Minimalists lightning round where we answer questions from social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at The Minimalists and Facebook.com slash The Minimalists. Our first question is from Nina. Nina asks, I just got rid of four bins of clothes, most unworn with tags. I know I, I know that feeling. I've been there. Yeah, <laughs> I want to sell these clothes, but I know it will take time to sell. How long should I keep them with me if they don't sell? After they don't sell, should I just donate them? Man, I remember going through this with my packing party. Yeah. It was so stressful, man, like putting things on eBay, putting things on Craigslist, uh-huh. figuring out what, what I was going to do with those you know, old cell phones that I had piled up in a drawer because I didn't want to just you know, give those out. I was thinking to myself, well, yeah, this phone's, I could at least make 20 bucks off of this or 50 bucks off of this. But what I, what I quickly realized was... The opportunity cost of me just giving all of that away, uh, it was the money that I would receive for those items, and that money was sunk cost. So when I say opportunity cost, opportunity cost is if you have a decision between an apple and an orange, and you choose the apple, then your orange is the opportunity cost. So I would encourage you, if it's stressing you out that much, just give it all away. I promise you the opportunity cost of the uh, you know, a couple hundred bucks that you might make off of those clothes, which if it's clothes, a couple hundred bucks is probably a stretch. Right, right. It kind of depends on the item. The way I looked at it is I had a lot of debt. And so Nina, what I would tell you and anyone else who's listening is if you have a lot of debt or if you have any debt, really, and you have some items that you can sell relatively easily, uh, Craigslist and eBay became really great friends of mine for the course of about eight months. I, I would encourage you to find the, the sort of the 80-20 rule, right? Find, find the 20% of the things that you're going to get the most value from and give yourself a deadline, whether that's 30 days or 90 days or 120 days or, or whatever it may be. Give yourself a deadline. Uh, I, I personally would, would, would try to pick 30 days so I can, like Ryan, get those things out of my life and find a way, uh, try very, very hard to sell those, those items, whatever you're trying to sell within 30 days. But 
after the 30 days are up, no matter what, be willing to, to let go and move on with your life. That way you can make some money in the meantime, use all of that money to pay off any debt that you have. If you don't have any debt and the stuff's stressing you out though, let go of it immediately unless you can very easily uh, sell the stuff. But make sure you stick to whatever, whatever mark that you set out there for yourself. Be willing to sell the stuff that you no longer find value in, but then be willing to let it go no matter what, even if it doesn't sell. Yeah, I mean, there were certainly some things I sold that um, helped me pay off some debt. Like I sold a big screen TV for a couple hundred bucks. I sold, uh, you know, a, a stereo system for a couple hundred bucks, and that was well worth it. But yeah, I mean, Nina, don't nickel and dime yourself to death. Um, that can really be stressful. I will. I do have one other idea. I'll tell you, there are some like eBay shops. I don't know where you're at in the world, but I know in big cities they have people who will sell your stuff for you. I mean, they'll take a small percentage of it, uh, but you might want to Google that and see if that's an option for you because that might be worth it just to pay someone 10 or 20% of the of the sales to have them put all of those items online for you. Great yeah. question, Nina. Let's move on to our next question. This one is from Morgan. Any advice on how to take the next steps in the direction of your dreams? I desire to leave the job I hate and begin a career in a creative field but it's scary thinking of the financials of that leap of faith. How did you guys survive financially when you decided to leave or were forced to leave your jobs in the corporate world? You know, I would just say just quit your job and start a blog. <laughs> That's the worst advice ever. Yeah, I think a lot of people think they can do that, though, right? Like, oh, like yeah. it's, it's just so easy to... to you know, leave and 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 do something that looks cool and exciting and sexy and 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 the truth is that whatever you're going to do, uh, you need to be running toward that. And right now, it, 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 I see Morgan as someone who is running away from a particular situation. I t- and that resonates with me because I was uh, I was getting to the point where I was miserable. I didn't necessarily hate my job. That's a very strong word. But I certainly wasn't passionate about it. And I was working 70 or 80 hours a week, every week, 362 days a year, just to maintain a lifestyle that wasn't bringing me joy. And, and realizing that I needed to, to simplify my life. In terms of the, the financial side of things, Ryan and I wrote out an entire plan of how we simplified our lives. And I'm going to go through just some of the highlights of that. But you can find the entire plan. It's called uh, Financial Freedom. Five difficult steps to get out of debt, create a simple budget, plan for the future, and regain control of your finances. It's a long title, and it's not misleading because it is five difficult steps. So the first step for me was to set a budget. I made a lot of money, but I spent even better money. And so even though I was making six figures and spending more than that, I had massive amounts of debt. And so the first thing I had to do was to create a budget. And I, what I call the ramen noodle diet, which I don't ever advocate actually eating ramen noodles, but but getting it down your expenses down to the absolute minimum. If you have a bill and it's not an absolute essential, it's about removing that from your from your life. And Ryan and I broke that down into a need, want, like list, identifying what your needs are, what your wants are, and what your likes are. So a need is something I absolutely need. I need food. I need a roof over my head. I, I need heat where I live. And I need these different things. They're things that I absolutely need. And, and 
And then the wants are things that, are, that do add value to my life. You know, I have an Apple Music subscription right now, and it's a one. I really get a lot of value from it. Some people have a cable subscription they, they get a lot of value from. There are a lot of different things you get value from. And then there, there's your like list. Like, I liked having satellite radio back in the day. I didn't get a ton of value from it, but I liked having it, and it was kind of cool. But it was costing me 15 bucks a month. And so uh, I... I identified my needs, my wants, my likes. The first month, I got rid of 100% of my likes. Just let go of all of the likes. And then I, I let go of uh, 100% of the wants in the second month. Very, very difficult because a lot of those things added value to my life. But I realized this was temporary deprivation as I was paying off my debts. And, and being willing to, to let go of those wants, I realized that once I got out of debt, I could bring those things back into my life that were actually going to add value again. And then my needs, I found a way to reduce even my needs. So I moved into a smaller apartment. I, I found ways to reduce my utility expenses. I got rid of internet at home and cable subscriptions, all these things I thought I needed. You know, Ryan, men you mentor a lot of different people. Um, and it's amazing when, when you have them put together a list of what someone says they truly need. Some of the things that make it to the need list are barely even likes, but we've set up our lives to think we actually need some stuff. Yeah, I'll get clients who will send me their needs list, and on their needs list is, well, we've got you know four cell phones and two uh, Wi-Fi cards. And then I, and I'll think, and I'll you know think to myself, oh well, they must have those Wi-Fi cards because they don't have internet at home, or they can't get internet or, where they or, live, or they or... can't get internet where they live, or they need it for their jobs, and uh, yeah, there's not a coffee shop close to them where they can use the internet, and then come to find out, it's no, they just have it because. Uh, they just feel like they need to have the internet wherever they go. And we kind of talk through stuff like that. But, you know, regardless, th this the, the plan that Josh and I lay out, is it perfect? Yeah, it's perfect for Josh and I, but it may not be perfect for you. But the, the key here is have a plan and stick to it. So having, having a plan, that's the first part. And then sticking to it, that is the second part. I mean, that is definitely what Josh and I did. That will help you overcome that fear of money or the fear of finances. Yeah, even a mediocre plan that is well executed is much much better than a pristine, magnificent plan that you don't take any action on Amen. whatsoever. Amen. So, so back to the plan real quick. Once I had a budget together and I set up sort of categories and boundaries and, and, and teamwork with the people in my life and found ways to adjust that plan. I also made sure I had a safety net within that plan. I think that's really important. Having $500 to $1,000 set aside for any emergencies that might happen. You know, if your, your tire blows or your transmission goes out, it's something where you need to have at least a little bit of a safety net set aside. Uh, and so after I had that, that, that budget, that plan for myself, I, I, I started paying myself. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means investing in my future. So finding a way to set aside, even if it's a dollar a paycheck, because it's about building that habit over time. Um, Ryan and I use something called Betterment. Uh, and they, you can also, you know, if you have a 401k at work or 403b um, or, or any kind of, you know, sort of IRA that you have an opportunity to contribute to, that's great. Um, but finding a way to set aside at least a little uh, bit of money, you know, if you're average Average person starts in their 20s, setting aside just a little bit of money. We all have the opportunity to be millionaires by the time we retire. The math is pretty simple. Everyone listening to this has the opportunity to be a millionaire within their lifetime by setting aside just about 100 bucks uh, a month. And, and so, and, and that's not even anything that, that is a 
a a high-risk sort of fund. I'm talking about the S&P 500 index funds. And so we outlined that whole plan and and what I do. In fact, you can see my entire retirement account down to the dollar and screenshots of everything that I have at uh, theminimalists.com slash retirement. Uh, The the third part of that plan is is getting debt-free. I spent the first 31 years of my life in debt from age 18 uh, I when I got my first credit card until I was 31 years old, I had some sort of debt. In fact, at one point in my late 20s, I had six figures worth of debt. And so I want to be clear about this. There is no such thing as good debt. I'll repeat that for you, Josh. There is no such thing as good debt. But but what about what about I have to have a, a, a mortgage what and about a car my school payment? Loans? I got to yeah, go to school. I got to go to school. Yeah, there's no such thing as good debt. There is some debt that is certainly preferable to others. I would rather have a 7-year fixed rate mortgage than a 3000% payday loan at at the corner store. But if there was a such thing as good debt, then you would just want more and more and more we of it, We would right? all be going and getting good debt yeah, right I'd, now. Yeah, I'd be swimming in good debt. Yeah, we, I am debt-free right now. Um, if you got an idea of some really good debt that I should get into, uh, send, send us an email. Let me know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so finding a way to get out of debt. We have a whole, a whole debt-free plan in that essay I talked about. Uh, and then I found a way to minimize by getting rid of the excess stuff in my life, simplifying my life minimizing my bills, I was able to pare down my lifestyle to where I was no longer reliant on the same amount of income. I didn't need to pay the huge mortgage payment or pay for the luxury cars I had anymore. And and by being debt-free, I was no longer tied to the same obligations, the 80-hour-a-week obligation. And so minimizing was was a big part of that. And and then finally, contribution. I think this one is is overlooked. We, We intend to get what we give. And by being willing to contribute beyond ourselves, even when we think we don't have a lot, uh, we do have other resources other than money. You have time. You have your attention. So back in Dayton, Ohio, Ryan and I would go on the weekends, and we'd go over to to the House of Bread, which is the soup kitchen over there in in West Dayton. We'd spend time there. or We'd do Habitat for Humanity. Uh, We'd do uh, uh, food banks, things like that, where you have the opportunity to contribute beyond yourself, not just with money, but with your time, with your attention. Understanding how other people live allows you to understand that maybe your situation that is so overwhelming isn't actually that overwhelming at all. So that's really our plan. I hope you find a lot of benefit in in the details of that. Before I move on to this next question, I I do just want to clarify the thing on debt because I know we're ruffling some feathers with the debt. We always do when we talk about it. Sure. Debt can be used as a tool. There is no doubt about that. Sometimes uh, debt is a tool that can be used to move you ahead further in life. But what Josh and I are really trying to say with debt is stay out of debt at all costs if you can. All right. This next question is from Missy. Missy writes, I'm thinking that after I'm done purging, I might need a detox program or something. I'm actually getting a high from clearing out 50 plus years of clutter. Is it depressing to finish? (laughs) You know, well, a few things. First off, hopefully you'll never be finished. There isn't a a list of 100 items every minimalist should own to be happy. But I would say don't confuse minimalism with the outcome. Minimalism is not the outcome. Your goal here, your objective is not to be a minimalist. The, The objective is to use minimalism to get that stuff out of the way. Get all that junk that is cluttering up your life out of the way so you can focus on the things that you want in your path. 
Yeah. Why did you start to declutter in the first place? Was it so you could have a nicer home and feel more comfortable bringing people over and uh, developing more relationships? Was it to free up that mental clutter so you had room to uh, take on maybe a hobby that you've always been interested in? But get back to the to the root of why you started to declutter in the first place and kind of ask yourself where you're going to go from there. Uh, having again, having a plan um, in this in this scenario is is another uh, great idea. What is your plan after the decluttering? What are you going to do with that free time? What are you going to do with that freed up space? A- start asking yourself those questions. What is your plan after the decluttering? What are you going to do? All right, let's move on to our next question. This is from Maddie. What do you do with items that you see as just in case items, but don't follow the twenty twenty rule, such as items you keep but don't use often, but are also harder to replace. Let's clarify what what the just-in-case rule is for those of you who don't know. You can find a whole essay about that in our book, Essential. Uh, There's also uh, a description on our website, uh, theminimalists.com slash J-I-C, the initials of just-in-case. So we often hold on to things uh, just in case we need them, right? We won't let go because we might need something someday in some far-off, non-existent, hypothetical future. And we pack too much stuff on our, for our vacations on the remotest chance that, that uh, we're going to need this thing just in case. And we hold on to so many things. It's the justification in our lives to hold on to things that aren't bringing us joy, but maybe they will someday. And so I, th- I think someday is the single most dangerous word that we utter because it gives us permission to hold on to things. And the three most dangerous words in the English language, of course, are just in case because it gives us permission to be irresponsible with our, our hoarding. And, and so the just in case rule that Ryan and I came up with is anything that you are holding on to just in case can generally be replaced for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes from from where you are. And that rule has held up 100% of the time for us, and it has allowed us to let go of hundreds, if not thousands, of just-in-case items because we've realized that many of the things that we thought we needed just-in-case, we never actually brought back into our lives. In fact, uh, in everything that remains we wrote about, there, there were five things over the course of five years between the two of us that we had to bring back into our lives that were just-in-case items. With Maddie's question, she's asking about, well, what about the just-in-case items I need? These aren't just-in-case items, Maddie. What you're talking about, this is a just-for-win item. Now, you might say, well, that's semantics. No, there are, I I will buy toilet paper just for when I need it. It's not just-in-case I need toilet paper. I know that I'm going to need toilet paper. Uh, other people might have, you know, an extra pair of glasses because they know they all are always losing their, their sunglasses or eyeglasses, and, and you have a consistent record of doing that. That is a just-for-win item. And I, I, I try to parse out the two because I know there are some things that I have that I will, will need at some point, and, and uh, uh, snowboarding equipment for you is a, a, probably a pretty good example of yeah. that. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I wouldn't say that's a good example for everyone. I mean, right. it's a good example for me. It wouldn't be a good example for me. If right. I were to go out and buy a bunch of snowboarding equipment, I'd be crazy because I don't snowboard. If you if you have a snowboard in your house and it's been sitting there for four years, that's not a just for one item. Right. Uh, that is uh, act now and snowboard or get rid of item. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. Yeah. All right. Next question is from Meredith. There is such an elated feeling after minimizing a space completely, but it seems the feeling doesn't last 
and the urge to purge becomes addicting. When you truly have little left to toss or donate, how can you channel that obsession into something beneficial? I think the, uh, getting rid of our stuff is not the point, and it's important to, to remember that, Meredith. The point is what we do after letting go of the stuff. So, so don't confuse the letting go with the actual meaning. There isn't a meaning in the letting go. The meaning comes after the letting go. If you really love purging, put an ad on Craigslist where you'll help other people purge their stuff. What a great idea. That's a lot of fun to throw away other people's stuff. It's so much <laughs> easier to let go of other people's stuff, too. I remember when Ryan was doing his packing party. He had you know, these kitchen cabinets full of stuff, and, and it was so easy for me to just like say, oh, all of this is just trash. And he's like, well, wait a minute. I need that just in case or this just in case. And, and it's harder. We're, we get tied to our own stuff, but letting go of other people's stuff is pretty easy. So you could have a lot of fun with that if, if, if you're really feeling good about your your purging activities. If you're super passionate about purging, then yeah, that's that's definitely a good idea. Next question, Alicia. I find myself a lot more restless now. I feel like I have all this extra time and I'm not sure how to fill it. Should I pursue my passion? I have no idea what it is or where to start. As of now, I'm trying to focus on strengthening the foundations, relationships, health, etc. But I feel like I could do so much more. Being quiet in the new space is harder than I thought. Yeah, I agree. I think it is difficult. In everything that remains, there's a, a, I think it's the sixth chapter. The title of it is The Sound of Minimalism. Because after Ryan had his packing party, he had this huge 2,000 square foot condo, three bedroom, this massive like second living room with you know, a very high vaulted ceiling. And when you remove the stuff from the space, it actually, the space itself sounds different. And dealing with that quiet, it's almost a different kind of quiet. It's the, the sound of simplifying in a way. And so dealing with that space is difficult. The question is, what are you going to fill that space with? We're not about get, getting rid of all of your stuff and, and living in a cave. If you want to do that, that's fine. I'm sure there's appeal to, to some people. We're, minimalism for us is, allows us to live in the modern world, but in, in a more intentional way. So yes, removing our pacifiers is difficult. And we don't always want to do it, but realizing that you know, the the security blanket is not what brings you actual security. You know, your your internal feeling uh, about the situation is what makes you feel secure. Yeah, when I left the corporate world uh, that first month, going from you know 100 miles an hour to a complete stop, it was very. Uh, hard to deal with. I don't want to say I was like depressed, but I definitely felt a little foggy and wasn't exactly clear on what I was going to do with all that extra time. And what I had to do was rework my entire schedule, my routine. I really had to switch it up. I started um, exercising regularly. I, I started writing more. Um, like I said at the beginning of this podcast uh, with the question about, you know, what, what activities did you give up? At first I was, oh, I'll just, you know, play some Xbox and then uh, maybe write a little bit. And, and I just kind of was trying to wing it. But I really had to uh, get clear on what I wanted to accomplish and how I was going to accomplish that. And we talk a lot about putting things in your schedule, putting things in your calendar. I know that's such a simple suggestion, but for me, if it's in my calendar, like two things, A, it makes me feel like I have to be there. So it gives me the sense of urgency and B, it really makes me question whether or not uh, I want to actually forego that appointment that I set up for myself. Am I going to cancel on myself? So that, that certainly helped me too. But yeah, reworking your routine is, is, is definitely worth it. And I'll, I'll, say, I'll say, you know, cultivating a passion, uh, reworking a routine, it's not easy. 
it's, it's, it, and this is what we always talk about with minimalism. We're not talking about living a perfect life or an easy life. It's, it's a simple life, but simple does not necessarily mean easy. Alicia said, uh, should I pursue my passion? I have no idea what that is or where to start. Well, then no, you shouldn't pursue your passion if you don't know what it is. Uh, our advice is always cultivate a passion. So I'm going to recommend a book to you by Cal Newport. It's a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And it talks about the benefits of finding something that aligns with your interests and your values and cultivating that into a passion over time. All right. This is our last question from Tori on hashtag Ask the Minimalists. Could you give us some insight into a day in the life of the minimalists? You guys talk about living your five values, but also focusing on one thing at a time, which seems contradictory. So it would be cool to see how these play out together in your day-to-day lives. You know, when I look at those five areas uh, or those five values, I look at them like they are five buckets. So if I am feeling a little off, Uh, on a day, I will look at those five areas and see where am I lacking? I am only as happy as the least full bucket. And what I mean by that is, is I could have the greatest relationships, cultivating the greatest passions, growing and contributing. But if my health isn't up to par, then those other four values don't mean anything. And the same holds true with with the rest of those. So each day, uh, I am focusing uh, typically on one thing. Uh, it, it, right now, it's, it's writing my book. It's focusing on cultivating this passion and, and, and getting this work out there. Um, tomorrow, uh, you know, it might be, uh, well, I need to call my mom today. I haven't talked to her in a while. I'm feeling a little off because I haven't uh, put a lot of effort into my relationships. Yeah, I would say don't, don't, conf- don't confuse the task with the value either. Some tasks can fulfill multiple values at, at once. If you go to the gym with someone else every single day, well, that can help improve that relationship, but it can also help improve your health. If you have a writing partner with someone else, you, you can cultivate a passion, you can grow together, and maybe you're helping them out, you're contributing as well. And so there are many tasks that fulfill many values or all five values. And Tori, I'd love to send you a copy of Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, where we talk about all five of those values. But the end of your question was, can you walk us through the average day of a, a day in the life of a minimalist? And about four or five years ago, I wrote an essay called A Day in the Life of a Minimalist for our friend Leo Babalta. He is, he's a dad with six kids. He has a whole minimalist family. Uh, he runs a website called zenhabits.net. And so you can find that essay over at zenhabits.net slash A-Day, A-D-A-Y. And I will read the first couple sentences from that as a, as a little teaser. I do not have a daily routine. I no longer need one. I do, however, have habits on which I focus every day. Don't get me wrong, I used to have a daily routine. Before I quit my career to pursue my passions and live a more meaningful life, And I hated that routine. Every day felt like Groundhog Day. Awake to a blaring alarm, shower, shave, put on a suit and tie, spend an hour or more in mind-numbing traffic, succumb to the daily trappings of emails and phone calls and instant messages and meetings, drive home through even more mind-numbing traffic, eat something from a box in the freezer, search for an escape within the glowing box in the living room, brush my teeth, set the alarm, sleep for five or six hours, start all over again in the morning. That was life most days. The same thing over 
and over and over. Wash, rinse, repeat. So that was my initial routine. My days look appreciably different now. And and so if you want to read about sort of my average day, it's built around habits. It's not built around a, a routine anymore. I will say this, in the mornings, I try to focus on three things, reading, writing, and exercising. And uh, I wrote about that in a different essay, but you can find it at theminimalists.com slash morning. I should write an essay on why I go to bed at 3.30 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't mean that I, I, I'm recommending that for other people necessarily, right? I am a... a uh, a lark and Ryan is a night owl and I wouldn't try to, to to conform to his schedule certainly and I would not expect someone who's a night owl to start getting up uh, appreciably earlier than they should because they're gonna it's gonna set their day up for failure so it's about identifying what your pattern is and then maximizing find, find a way to optimize your your day based on based on that pattern all right, let's uh, move on to our added value portion of the show. This is where we recommend something that has added value to our lives recently. And since we're talking about next steps, I just got a copy, and I'm in the middle of reading it right now, so I haven't finished it, but I'm still going to recommend it. Uh, uh, a guy named Colin Bevan, who is in our documentary, and we, he, he wrote a book and, and a documentary, had a documentary as well called No Impact Man, where he lived with a year, for a year with essentially zero waste. I mean, no electricity, uh, uh, you know, no garbage, and, and just this amazing experiment. That's not what I'm recommending. What I'm recommending is, is his new book. It's called How to Be Alive. And, and to me, that's what minimalism is about, is getting that excess out of the way so you can focus on how to be alive. And I'll read a, a, a brief excerpt from uh, the back of the book here. How do you stop placing limits on your potential impact? How do you make your choices really matter in everything from your clothing purchases to your career? How do you find people who will most support you in your quest for a good life? So earlier I mentioned asking better questions. These are great questions, and this book helps you identify some of the questions. The, the chapter I'm on right now, he has a, a, a subtitle here. It says, Be Too Stupid to Know Your Limitations and take the first step. And so it talks about moving on. I know when Ryan and I first started TheMinimalists.com, had we had uh, known at the time that there were probably 20,000 other minimalist blogs, it would have been overwhelming. And we certainly wouldn't have become the, the leaders in, in this movement. It was a bit, a bit of an accident. We were just trying to catalog our journey and, and add some value to a few people's lives, hoping that someone could get value from it. And so how to be alive, one of the things to do is, yeah, it's okay to be ignorant sometimes. It's just taking those actions, taking those steps. And so hopefully uh, Colin's book, we'll put a, a link to it in, in the show notes, but hopefully you you can you can find uh, uh, you can find it as a guide. In fact, the the subtitle of the book is a guide to the kind of happiness that helps the world, and that's really what I'm looking for. How do I grow? How do I how do I give? Yeah, I would like to recommend an accountability partner. Mm. Uh, since we've been talking about what to do after the, the decluttering, find find an accountability partner who can help hold you accountable for those steps afterwards. Let's say you want to start developing or cultivating a passion for writing. Well, if you want to do that, you're going to have to write every single day and not for a half hour, uh, probably for uh, two hours, three hours. 
Uh, I mean, you know, I, I sometimes write for a half hour or an hour. I don't get very much done in that time. It usually takes me about two to three. Um, but find an accountability partner who maybe will meet with you at a coffee shop and, 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 and write with you. Or maybe you guys just meet later in the afternoon or have a phone call about how the writing went. I totally agree. And I think that's one of the reasons Ryan and I have, have been successful in doing what we're doing here is uh, helping keep each other accountable. Mm-hmm. We, we have a, a pedagogical relationship. We're both mentors and mentees to each other. And, and we were able to sort of be the yin and the yang and, and for many of the things that, that we do. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you could find an accountability partner at uh, minimalist.org. Uh, you could find a local meetup group in your area and see if you can find someone to help you out. And if there isn't a meetup uh, in your area, you can go to the online city. And there are about 1,500 members on there who are helping to inspire and motivate others. But yeah, there's a lot of good activity going on there. So even if there isn't a uh, local meetup group in your town, uh, there, there are still options for you. Let's move on to our final segment, what we call Right Here, Right Now. This is where we finally get to talk about us and uh, you know, the, sort of what's going on in the lives of the minimalists. Well, first off, we have Tuesdays with the Minimalists. Every Tuesday in February on Periscope and Twitter, 7 p.m. Eastern, we're answering your questions live. We've had thousands of people join us at this point on Periscope and Twitter, and we love interacting. It's, it's a really great time. So join us 7 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday in February for Tuesdays with the Minimalists. Also, uh, I already mentioned our documentary is coming out May 24th, but Ryan and I are hitting the road uh, in May. So the entire month of May, we're going to 14 different cities. We're likely coming to a city near you. You can find all the tour dates at theminimalists.com slash tour. We hope to see you there. Now, a lot of cities are selling out and or have already sold out. Many of them sold out in 24 hours. And so we added second screens to a lot of them. And in some cases, like in LA, we, we found a bigger theater. And I think in in Dallas, we found a bigger theater as well. And so if your city is sold out, I think New York and Seattle are, get added to the waiting list because you'll be first in line to to get tickets for either a second screening, if we do a screening the same night, or if we get a bigger theater, you'll be first in line to be able to pick up tickets for that. And uh, one last thing, I taught a, a workshop uh, earlier this month, how to write better writing workshop. So I teach a four-week, uh, I call it a semester-long class at howtowritebetter.org. And, and that is sometimes time prohibitive for a lot of people. And so I have been, I just started teaching a one day workshop on Super Bowl Sunday. I forgot it was Super Bowl Sunday because I'm not a big sports ball fan. But we, we had hundreds and hundreds of people show up to, to that workshop. So many people said so many nice things about it. It was a two hour workshop. I think it ended up going three or four hours. And that, that's, that tends to be how I roll. So I have another two hour workshop coming up in June. So it's a, it's a while away, but it's June 26, and you can get all the details for that at howtowritebetter.org. Finally, here are some voicemail comments from our last episode. Hi, this is Bridget in Portland, Oregon. And in response to your last episode, I just wanted to suggest that people check out vintage, used, or even family heirloom rings, which are often a great eco-friendly and human-friendly alternative to conventional engagement rings. Hi, Josh and Ryan. This is Caitlin from Baltimore, I wanted to share a tip to help in reducing consumption of items and overall collection of stuff. So my tip is to live by the buy me once rule. So this means two things. Number one, if I buy this item, will I need to replace it in a few months or a few years or even my lifetime? Does the manufacturer offer repairs or can it easily be fixed? 
There's actually a website, buymeonce.com, that only includes products with a lifetime guarantee. So when I'm buying an item, I want it to last as long as possible, ideally my lifetime. And number two, if I buy this item, am I going to get bored of it in a few months or years? Is this a timeless, classic item that I will keep forever? In this case, I'm thinking mostly of clothes and decorative items or furniture, but you can also apply this to things like children's toys or kitchen items. In the short term, you'll probably spend more on your buy me once items, but it's okay if you're truly following that rule since you will only have to buy it once. Hi, my name's Elizabeth, and I'm from Portland, Oregon. Um, I was just calling because your last episode, you talked about engagement rings, and um, I just had an idea for people who may still want that but want to turn it into something that's more valuable and an experience. Um, so something my husband and I did is we found a place in our state that you can actually go mine your own stone. And so um, we both are rock hounds. That's something that we're really passionate about. So we went out and we mined our own wedding stones and then we had them cut and set into rings. And I mean, the whole experience was probably less than $200 for both of our rings. And um, it really was, we were able to create something that was really valuable and meaningful for us and had a really memorable experience. Hi, this is Lewis from Lacrosse. I just had a comment about uh, Caitlin's question from the stuff episode. I was thinking about in terms of cooking, like if you wanted to simplify or not collect so many things, you could focus on a specific cuisine or, um, I don't know, style of food. It would be like, um, for instance, for Ryan, focusing on a certain kind of snowboarding, like just freestyle as opposed to racing or backcountry kind of snowboard riding. Or uh, what resonated for me was um, in music, music um, focusing on one instrument and um, getting really good at that. So it gives a more opportunity to collaborate with other people. And you could say the same thing about food. Um, where you specialize in one thing and maybe you have a friend who specializes in another and you can mix and match and uh, enjoy dinner parties together. All right, y'all, that's it for this episode. If you have a question for The Minimalists, uh, we, we are doing a couple episodes. We're doing one on careers and one on money. So especially if you have questions on career and money, We'd love to hear those questions or comments as well uh, about careers and, and money or passion and money could be another way to look at it. Or maybe you call it mission and money. So we're doing two separate episodes coming up on that. If you have a, a, any question for us, you can give us a call, 406-219-7839. And if you leave here with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing 
that you gotta have, you gotta reach for, and you gotta grab. Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it. So take your eyes away, or take.